welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Greer Donnelly, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We will discuss her article, Contraceptive Equity, Curing the Sex Discrimination in the ACA's Mandate, which is published in the Alabama Law Review. So welcome to the show, Greer. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, Mike Madison recommended your paper to me because I really enjoyed reading it. I thought it was a really kind of fascinating and thoughtful take on reproductive equity. And it's also really beautifully written. So it comes as no surprise to me that it's also an award-winning paper. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit about something, a little something about that at the beginning of the interview. Great. Yeah. So um, I I found out just a few months ago, I guess maybe one month ago, um, that this paper was chosen as part of an Emerging Scholar Award. Um, And so, yeah, I was very excited about that. Well, congratulations. It's well-deserved and uh, an excellent paper. And I really look forward to talking to you about it. And I was wondering if initially you could say a little something about what you mean by contraceptive equity. In other words, how is it that contraception is currently inequitable? Great. Yeah. So I think that um, there's kind of two different ways that someone could think about contraceptive equity. And the one is more on the lines of like formal equality in the law. So like this, this paper really attacks the fact that the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate um, excludes men. Um, so one way you could kind of think about contraceptive equity would be in this kind of formal equality um, in the law way. But I think my paper is actually much more interested in kind of the broader equity that's going on um, just in everyone everyday lives. So for instance, it's why is it that women assume the vast majority of the burdens of, of birth control? Um, and so this paper really attempts to argue that the law um, is influencing that kind of cultural phenomenon and maybe changing the law um, can help improve um, the, the equity between the sexes in terms of contraception. Well, specifically, how exactly is access to contraception and different kinds of contraception inequitable as between women and men and why do you think that ultimately, on some level, that burden seems to fall ultimately on women? Yeah, so if you look at the data, roughly um, between uh, two-thirds to 75% of, um, of birth control is, is used by women. So the most common methods are you know, the birth control pill, but you also have um, tubal ligation, which is a surgical method for women, um, IUDs. There's a bunch of different methods out there that women, that women use. Um, so the question is, though, that there, men and women are equally capable of using birth control, right? There are options out there for men. So why is it that, um, that the women are taking on so many more of these burdens? Um, and so one of the arguments of this paper is that um, the very fact that the uh, contraceptive mandate excludes men, in other words, um, it doesn't guarantee that insurance will cover male birth control uh, without cost sharing in the same way it does for women, that that kind of creates the expectation or furthers an expectation that maybe already exists that birth control is a woman's problem and that it's really her job to prevent pregnancy. Well, is this something new with the ACA or is this kind of 
reproductive, contraceptive, inequity kind of baked into a longer legal history of how we think about reproductive rights? It's a really interesting question. I think that it's not new. So birth control has kind of been considered, you know, a woman's job for a long time, maybe not not forever. So if you look back, you know, the first modern type of birth control was condoms, um, and that came out in the late 1800s. So, you know, when that was the most effective and, and accessible means of birth control, it might have not been at that time um, that women were using birth control more than men. But certainly since the turn of the century, that is that has changed as um, more more women's options have come, um, come about. But I also think it's worth noting that, you know, um, historically, women um, wanted to be using birth control, right? Like there was, um, like historically, women were being prevented from accessing contraception, which they desperately wanted and needed. And so I think that um, it's almost almost an accident of history, perhaps, that it just turned out that the fight for birth control really focused on women because women had the most at stake, right? They had the most to lose. Um, but in the, at the end of the day, when the law, the mandate was promulgated, um, it, it had this, this accident in it that, that men were excluded in a way that actually ended up harming the very group that it was intended to benefit. So people haven't always had, women always haven't had access to contraceptive methods. How did that access initially change and become constitutionalized? And how, if at all, did the way it became constitutionalized affect how we think about the nature of the right to access? Yeah, so the history, so my paper has kind of a long history section, which was really fun to write. I'm in no way a legal historian, but um, it was kind of interesting to look just like at the the whole movement, the whole birth control movement from basically the late 1800s um, through the contraceptive mandate and all the different points at which um, which birth control access either was removed or was um, improved at different times. So, so originally birth control kind of came onto the scene um, without much thought, right? In the late 1800s when condoms became available, um, there wasn't the stigma that um, became associated with um, the what was known as the Comstock laws. Um, so eventually um, moralists entered the scene and attempted to try to limit um, access to birth control, saying that this was, you know, um, a problem from kind of a moral perspective. So all these laws were passed, federal and state, um, that actually some went, some just prohibited the sale of uh, or the distribution of contraception in interstate commerce. Um, others went so far as to ban the use of contraception at all. Um, and so these laws kind of came about, um, and it wasn't until a, you know, movement, kind of a woman-led movement that started around the 1920s, um, which where women kind of stood up and said that, hey, our, we can't really control our lives without being able to control the number and spacing of our children. Um, and so this movement, which was really started by women and, um, and continued by women throughout many, many decades, um, fought to... Um, to challenge these laws. So um, the first law to fall was the kind of federal Comstock um, Act, uh, where the Second Circuit essentially said that you couldn't prevent, um, you couldn't prevent doctors from distributing contraception. So um, that happened, I think it was in the 1930s, I should check that out. But I um, that that case um, was the first kind of big case in this area. 
But then there was this need later on um, to attack the state laws, which were preventing women from accessing contraception. And so we have the famous case Griswold, right, which most um, law students study in, in their 1L con law course, um, which is, you know, the first case that found the right to privacy. Um, and this was a, a law challenging um, the, I think it was Connecticut's um, uh, statute, which prevented um, people from using contraception. Um, it, but the, the case was really mainly about married couples at that point. Um, and so then we have Eisenstadt versus Baird, which extended that to non-married couples. And eventually we have this Kerry case, um, which finally officially held that the right to birth control was a fundamental right and that laws that limited access to birth control were subject to strict scrutiny, which was, I think, 1978. How has the Supreme Court and lower courts conceptualized the nature of this fundamental right to, to birth control? And how has that affected the way we think about access? I mean, on some level, it seems like, you know, if it's a fundamental right, then it ought to be a fundamental right across the board for everybody. Has it worked out that way or not? Well, so I think so. um, The really important distinction is that the fundamental right does protect everybody, but it doesn't protect access. It just prohibits the government from essentially prohibiting someone from accessing contraception. So the problem was that, you know, there was this huge um, the there was this huge victory, of course, when all these cases started coming out. But then women were left with the reality that birth control was still very expensive and the constitutional right that they had fought for did not extend so far as to also ensure that they could afford birth control. So um, after all these cases came out, there was kind of the shift that needed to happen where people recognized that just because you had um, this fundamental right to birth control didn't mean that you were going to have access to it. Um, and a lot of women didn't. So um, birth control is expensive and health insurers were kind of famous before the Affordable Care Act for actually um, practicing a lot of being really discriminatory against women, private health insurers were. Um, and so one of the ways that they discriminated against women was that they uh, did not cover birth control. Um, many of them did not. And so uh, what happened is that women were paying a, a lot more for, um, for their health insurance than men, just as a, as a baseline, because health insurers were practicing this thing called gender rating, where women were required to pay more. But in addition, they weren't even getting birth control covered. Um, and so the new fight after, all, after, the, after the constitutional law cases came out really shifted towards the legislature to try to pass a law that would guarantee access, guarantee coverage um, for birth control. And that's kind of where the mandate came in. How could insurers do that? I mean, isn't it sort of facially discriminatory to deny medical, fundamental right-based medical treatment to a class of people based on sex? Well, before the Affordable Care Act, it wasn't actually illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex. So one of the most important provisions of the Affordable Care Act is Section 1557, which made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex in the private um, insurance markets. Um, but but you're right. So um, uh, famously, Sylvia Law argued um, in the 80s, I think, um, that it was um, illegal under Title VII for um, em- employer-sponsored health plans to not cover birth control, um, and eventually the EEOC agreed with her with her argument. But um, the courts were really mixed, and the only circuit court to to actually hear that um, that issue found that it wasn't discriminatory. 
they they held the Eighth Circuit held that it wasn't discriminatory discriminatory because even though only women um, uh, there was only female methods of of uh, pharmaceutical birth control, the health insurers weren't covering vasectomies at that time either, which were for men. And so they said that it was um, that there was no kind of facial sex discrimination going on. Well, in your paper, you you point out that even today different methods of birth control are kind of conceptualized differently for the purpose of coverage and that that has discriminatory effects as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of what the rationale for the distinction would be and what kind of consequences or effects it has. Yeah. So, so the, um, so what basically the mandate was eventually promulgated um, pursuant to the um, Affordable Care Act um, and it actually created a facial distinction in the law. So the mandate says that health insurers have to cover birth control and, and in fact, all FDA approved methods of birth control for women, um, but they don't have to cover um, these methods for men. So the, the two methods that men have access to today um, are condoms and vasectomies. Um, so, you know, I often thought, I spent a lot of time when I was writing this paper kind of thinking, why, why, why did this happen? Right. Why did they, you know, you know, cause my, essentially my paper is based on the fact that this exclusion of men actually harms women. Um, and that it's bad for women that men were excluded. And I have a bunch of arguments for that, but, and kind of thinking through like, why did they, why did they make this decision to exclude men? I think the reality was just that women had fought, spent so many decades fighting for the right to um, have access to birth control that they didn't, they weren't really focused on men. You know, it kind of, I think, took a, um, the next generation coming around like me, who honestly took for granted the fact that I always had, you know, free access to birth control because I'm a millennial um, to kind of think about what, what, what are the problems with the current mandate as it stands today? Well, how is it as a practical matter that excluding men from coverage ultimately harms women? I mean, normally we would think that if women are being protected, then that would accomplish the goal. Why is it relevant to that problem or that concern, whether we're providing coverage for men as well? Yeah, so I I have four arguments for why I think it's um, it's a real problem that we're excluding men. So the first is that it turns out that um, about a quarter to um, a third of women rely on male birth control to prevent pregnancy. So um, it you know there's this idea that if we give um, if we're giving men access to birth control, how does it help women? Well, because all unintended pregnancy happens in a woman's body, anytime you're giving women access to other methods of birth control to prevent pregnancy, you are helping them. Um, For a lot of reasons I get into my paper, there are women may prefer male methods of birth control. Um, You know, they have fewer side effects. Women, a lot of women are actually just medically prohibited from using um, hormone-based contraception. Um, Certain types of male birth control are much safer. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why some women might prefer male birth control. And, and to the extent that they do, these are women are this significant minority of women are just not being protected under the mandate. Um, I also talk about how um, that um, the mandate really incentivizes women to bear all the, all the side effects and risks of contraception. 
So um, the best example of this is that tubal ligation and vasectomy, which are both permanent surgical methods of birth control. Um, it turns out that the uh, female version of this tubal ligation is actually much riskier. It's less effective. It's much more invasive. Um, yet the mandate is incentivizing women to undergo that riskier, less effective procedure when an equally um, available option exists for men. I, in the paper, I talk a little bit about how the mandate might continue to incentivize um, uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop more birth control methods for women instead of men, which could be a problem to the extent that you think, well, we need to actually have more methods for men so that it's easier for men to use birth control so that women are not expected to be the ones to bear the, the risks and burdens. But finally, the paper talks a lot about sex stereotypes, so, which are, you know, really important in the equal protection clause land. So I argue that the, just the very fact that we have this law on the books that only provides coverage for women um, to have birth control suggests that it's a woman's burden, right? It, it is her problem that she's to blame when unintended pregnancies happen um, and that men are just either too lazy or uninterested to actually prevent pregnancy and use contraception safely, which um, actually when you look at the data there, men are, are interested in, in other forms of birth control and are willing to, to take on some of the burdens. I mean, does this kind of focus on neutrality or on avoiding sex stereotypes have a history in the kind of constitutional arguments made in support of women's rights? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, famously, when when all of these kind of sex discrimination cases were first coming out, um, the litigators at the time made the decision to attack a lot of um, the law's benefits that explicitly protected women. And their argument there was that most of the time when you had a law that just benefited women, it did create these sex stereotypes. Um, so oftentimes these sex stereotypes um, were that women's place was in the home, right? That a woman was dependent on a man in some way. So you had in the 70s, a bunch of cases that came down that, that um, invalidated um, facially discriminatory laws um, because they they thought that even though it benefited women, it was really harming women in the long run um, to suggest that um, they needed these benefits um, more than men did, even when men were similarly situated. So it's actually the question is really like what what use does the classification serve, right? So to the extent the mandate, for instance, exists for everybody, it, we're not really removing any benefit that women receive. We're just adding a benefit to men. And by doing so, we're removing kind of the sex stereotypes that are created in the law. What kind of knock-on effects does the current structure of the law have in relation to the technology of birth control? I mean, there are, are there reasons to think that there might be sort of consequences that are kind of unseen or not anticipated of restricting coverage to women and not to men? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the paper is that, um, is that there are only, you know, two different types of birth control for men on the market and both have been, both have existed for almost a century now. Um, so one of the, um, I think that one way that we can actually improve contraceptive act equity would be to get more options for men so that men might feel more um, like they have more 
um, options themselves if they do want to um, take on more of the burden. So uh, there are, since the 1970s, in fact, there have been studies showing that male like pharmaceutical male birth control is possible, that it's effective. Um, and yet the, for a variety of, of, of reasons, mainly because the um, largely male uh, pharmaceutical executives didn't think that this was uh, worth pursuing, um, male birth control has just been not invested in, um, in, any, in any real way. So um, there are studies going on right now um, of various different types of male birth control options. Um, but the problem is that there's just, um, there's, you know, it's hard to get a, uh, a new pharmaceutical or a new product over the finish line. And so to the extent that you can guarantee coverage for male birth control options, to the same extent that you're guaranteeing co insurance coverage for uh, female methods, it might create more of an incentive to actually get these products to the market, um, which again can impact culture and influence in a positive way um, how, you know, the, the contraceptive equity that is going on on the ground. Well, so as a practical matter, how do you think the argument in favor of the sort of neutrality that you're proposing would be framed most effectively? I mean, do you see it as fundamentally, primarily a constitutional argument grounded in equal protection or more of a prudential argument grounded in good policy and how we ought to think about sort of doing reproductive rights uh, from a kind of medical policy perspective? It's a really good question. I think it's both. I think that, um, I think that if you, if you talk to, um, you know, just average women, I think that there is a, a huge appetite for there to be, um, more methods for men, because I think a lot of women are kind of fed up of having to be the ones to use birth control and, and endure the side effects, effects and risks all the time. Um, I think that there are reasons for, um, from just like a public health perspective that, um, you know, the United States has a really high unintended pregnancy rate um, and to the extent that we can actually increase um, the methods available so that that goes down. I think that serves everybody's interest. Um, but I also definitely think that there is a strong constitutional argument here, too, um, and that, you know, that could be a way to um, actually get move this forward in other words. In other words, litigation, to the extent it ever happens, um, could be a useful way to kind of force Congress to act here um, and do something that might be quite popular, um, but they also just might not be doing on their own. Well, to the extent that people might be interested in pursuing this kind of litigation, particularly from a constitutional equal protection perspective. I wonder if you have any thoughts about sort of the framing or particular concerns that might arise in litigation that people might want to keep in mind in terms of thinking about kind of structuring or presenting or conceptualizing the kind of case that would most effectively make the underlying points that you're talking about in this paper. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the re the reason I wrote this paper really from the women's rights perspective is um, to kind of avoid, you know, I think that I think that it would be a problem, for instance, um, if someone wanted to start this a lawsuit and really took this kind of from the men's rights perspective. Um, I don't I don't think there's there it would necessarily be wrong, um, but I do think that it might ring kind of tone deaf to a lot of the people who could be reading that um, that challenge. 
In other words, you know, in light of the history and the really centuries long battle that women women undertook to to get this really important piece of um, this really important rule out there that that actually protects them in a lot of really important ways. It could be seen as, you know, tone deaf is probably the best word for it if to come in and say, like, hey, you know, men, we we need um, we want our free birth control, too. But that's really such a. Um, is such a narrow, like, I don't think, you know, there's so many other reasons to support um, the extending the mandate to women, to men, um, and, you know, taking this paper from the women's rights perspective, and really showing all the different ways that women could be benefited from this, um, I think is just really important in, in terms of framing it. Um, so I talk about in the paper that, you know, this this law would be judged according to intermediate scrutiny. And one of the ways the government could prove that this was an important, the classification of the law was an important government interest is to say, point to the real history um, that the, the and their need to remedy the historical discrimination that occurred here. Well, that kind of goes out the window once you start to realize that the the very classification actually harms the group that's intended intended to benefit from this law. So I think um, framing it as from a women's rights perspective is important. And then I also would think that it's just really and the um, paying attention to the remedy is also quite important. So theoretically, if a court did find this to be unconstitutional, and I think the argument's quite strong that it is, um, the much harder question and the scarier question um, is what, what can the court do about it? And the court theoretically could either what's what scholars call leveling up or leveling down. So they could theoretically say, okay, well, the, the contraceptive mandate is unconstitutional and therefore um, it's, we're just nixing it from the law, right? <laughs> that would be a problem. That would be a bad outcome. Um, on the other hand, they could also do what I think they should do um, and extend the, just extend the, the benefit to men. Um, but there's a risk there. And so I think litigators would want to be careful about that. In closing, I wonder if you could reflect more broadly on the kind of constitutional theoretical perspective that you take in the paper as a way of kind of framing how you talk about this, right? Specifically, the sort of encouragement of thinking about neutrality as not just being a kind of abstract principle, but one that actually ultimately can benefit disadvantaged groups. Is this something that you think might be beneficial to keep in mind as we think more broadly about uh, discrimination against women and women's rights more generally? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I think that um, I think that history has taught us that there are, you know, all of these that so many laws that were really um, created with a genuine desire to probably help women um, to the extent that they create this um, facial facial sex classification in the law often do end up um, hurting them in some way by creating sex stereotypes. Um, and I think that I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that something like this happened, I think, in uh, 2013, right, that you would kind of have thought that we would have known better than to do this by now. Um, but I also think it's a really it's a really normal human thing to try to benefit um, you know, by when you're trying to benefit women to kind of be focusing on women in particular. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely do think that in general, we should, that, um, that 
anytime the legislator is thinking about a, a facial sex classification in the law, they should be really, really careful to think through what benefit it serves. And it's, especially in the extent like, like with the mandate here, if you allowed both sexes access to it, women are still going to disproportionately benefit and by a lot. Um, but you're just, but you're ensuring that they benefit without any sort of um, corresponding harm, for instance, that they're now um, expected to bear all the burdens. Um, so I think that, you know, neutrality can really, uh, when, at least when it comes to sex discrimination, um, neutrality can be a really, um, a, a really important thing for us to aim towards. Well, Kira, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it. And I encourage readers to, or listeners to check it out because uh, there's a lot more in there, especially some really fascinating historical background. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. or confused, get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor.